Hello and welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide, improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, no, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you so much for jumping on and, and uh, being willing to share your story and your experiences in this platform, in this medium. It's very important. So let's start with you, because you're here, with uh, where you grew up and uh, what that looks like. Yeah, so I was the uh, only son, a uh, third generation farmer on a farm near... Uh, Peekna, which is near Oruru, yep. um, and uh, because I was the only son, I was destined to be the next uh, generation, and I took that very seriously. I went to Rosewithy College, uh, and then uh, came back came back on the farm. I bought uh, my first farm at nineteen. I used to raise pigs and raise money whichever way I could, and that sort of stuff. And and uh, yeah, and uh, on this on this uh, block of land that I bought, it had a house, and I that was the house that I intended to live uh, live on for the rest of my life. Um, it was a very run down farm, so I poured a heap of uh, knowledge and money into that farm to get uh, to get it, the fertility up and to get it uh, uh, to the stage that it was at. What were you doing? What was the primary source of the farm? So we, we were cropping, which was uh, wheat and barley mainly. Okay. We've tried to grow other crops, but we haven't got enough rainfall for that. We're right Where our farm is is right on the edge of the cropping country, where the cropping country finishes and then the station country starts. Right, but, for cattle. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, we, we're a low-rainfall uh, environment. Um, but uh, I put a lot of work into... Um, when I came back from Rosewood College, I was uh, president and secretary of uh, our local ag bureau and uh, I was always trying to increase the knowledge in our, in our community to make us uh, more viable. And eventually it got oh, to yeah. the stage when ag bureaus went west. I uh, helped set up... I was a founding chairman for the Upper North Farming Systems Group and that way we could get trials done in our area, specific to our area, which is really important. To help increase yields. And exactly, yeah. yeah. And and we also, uh, because we rely on livestock a lot, because uh, our crops aren't are quite often not very good, uh, so we, we incorporated that into it as well. And it right. was a really good mixture, and I think it's something that's been a real boon for our, for our area. So you grew up on the farm. What was the community like? There was a lot. Of, there were a lot of people around about my age. We'd had a series of good years, which is a, sure. uh, which makes a difference because the kids will come back if there's a bit of money about, oh, yeah. and they won't if if we get a series of droughts. So at that time, uh, yeah, it was in the seventies uh, and eighties, and we were we were in a pretty good time. And so we had a lot of people my age. It was a good community, yeah. and uh, yeah, we really got on well. Nice. And wh- what was the local town? Uh, I live near Peakner, which is a really. Uh, 
uh, not very much, only a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> so then, usually, I love the blank stare when I say to Pinkner to people. So then I've got to move to uh, Oruru, uh, and Oruru is a town of about uh, 500 people okay, uh, in yeah, there, which is, you know, a, a typical South Australian uh, country town. Yeah. And that's a good community there as well. Yeah, beautiful. Let's sort of move on to your suicidal ideation, if that's okay, mm-hmm. and sort of. Uh, just briefly cover when you felt the first moments that that was starting to become prominent in your life and you were becoming aware of it. Yeah, um, uh, I suppose... Now, this is going to be a long story, I'm sorry, but... Uh, when, That's OK. Well, yeah. Um, when, when, uh, when I came back from Rosewithy College and I'm on a farmer... Uh, I'm on the farm and... Uh, uh, I wanted to, you know, I married a local girl. Um, we were going to have a family together. We both had same interests. We both wanted family. Uh, I wanted to build up the farm. I, I, I took my third generation uh, very seriously. I wanted to be able to take this farm and, and make it better uh, for the next generation and bring yep. the next generation on. So that was the, the paradigm that I based my whole life on. Not very long after, after I was married, though, I realised that <clears throat> my wife didn't have the same, um, yeah, the same um, ideas as, as I had, and uh, uh, and so it wasn't a very um, a loving relationship, and that really stunned me because it just broke the paradigm. Oh, like you only get married once, you live forever, you yeah. have kids, and that sort of thing. And I could see that this wasn't going to happen. Um, so um, yeah, that that made me feel really bad. Uh, in that you know I'm I'm an undesirable. Uh, um, a, a person that, 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 that she doesn't want, the one that was supposed to love me doesn't want me. Um, she lived her own life and we, we virtually, although we were together for nearly 30 years, uh, it hung on and hung on because I thought, well, as, um, as we, one thing that we did agree on, we both wanted kids. So uh, we ended up with five kids. But uh, even though it was very hard for me mentally and I was in a loveless relationship, I thought for as long as I can put this up, put up with this um the the family stays together and that was really important to me yeah um but the trouble was um by doing that it had a huge toll on my mental health sure and then uh, i had a, a a spell there in 96 where my mother my best friend uh, died early of cancer uh, i had a bushfire that nearly burnt all my house and sheds down uh, my grandmother died and then we had a huge flood and all this happened within a few months. Right. And I think that's when, that was the straw that really broke me. I'd already under pressure from a bad relationship and that, that really broke me. And, um, um, yeah, and then from 96 to, to 99 we had four, four droughts in a row. Uh, so then by then I was, uh, the bank wouldn't lend me any more money. I was no longer uh, viable. Um, and uh, so that was really hard. Uh, so coming up to 2000 was the worst locust year we've ever had and I I'm remember. trying to grow a crop, the, the really mm. important, most important crop in my life um, but uh, yeah we managed to get it, scrape together enough money and put that crop in and that was okay and then 2001 was a really boomy year so that that was the, uh, the spell that sort of got me back on track a little bit but I was never the same after that and, and uh, that's when the suicidal thoughts, you know, that, that feeling of hopelessness uh, of being useless and, and not good enough, like even the 
uh, even my wife hates me and, and all those sort of things. So uh, my self-image was just, uh, you know, down the gurgler and yeah. self-esteem was just shocking. When did you start reaching out to people? Like most farmers, you've got to run yourself into the ground before you start actually reaching out. You, you don't talk to anyone about it and you don't think about it. But it actually got to the stage we had... Ten very poor years in the 2000s, so it got to about 2006, and I just couldn't get out of the house. I, I, mm. I just, I almost had a panic attack, like going out of the house, because I just couldn't face what was out there anymore. <coughs> I was just sick of the the constant uh, kick in the guts, and yeah, and uh, my wife wasn't around much, so she didn't know that I was spending a lot of the time uh, in the house, like going round and round in circles, and I. It occurred to me, well, you know, obviously I'm going psycho because this isn't normal thought. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Perhaps I need to uh, uh, go and see a doctor and he can give me a referral to a psychologist and they can put me in some loony bin somewhere where I can start getting help, something like that. So... So I went to see the doctor and he said, oh, well, I think, I think you've got depression. And I said, oh, no, I don't think so. I've, I've seen the ads <laughs> on TV and I don't think I fit that mould very well. And, right. But he said, oh, no, 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 we'll you know, have these tablets and see how you go. Well, within a, a week, I felt as though a cloud had lifted off my head. And that's what I'd had was, uh, was depression. So that's, And then um, I was talking to a mate about my experience and I said, oh, you know, I've been diagnosed with depression. I feel really bad because I'm the only one in the district with depression. And he said, no, nah, bullshit. And he named off 12 people who, who were in the district that had depression. I had no idea because I was that wrapped up in my own little world and trying to survive each day. Do you, do you remember how you felt and you were like, okay, now now's the day that I'm going to talk to him about it? Was it just a, an accidental sort of thing? I think it was a real surprise to me that I, that I had depression because, honestly, it wasn't the thing. I knew I was feeling sad and I wasn't thinking 100%. And, and I suppose it was just in general discussion. And I, I suppose in general I've always usually been fairly open to have this definite diagnosis of depression. Yeah. And I just, it just uh, fell into conversation with this guy because I, I knew him really well. He was a yeah. good friend and that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, and, that, and that's what made me think, well, you know, like people aren't talking about this. It's ridiculous. One in five will get it in their lifetime and nobody's talking about it. Like if everyone had a broken leg, one in five people broke their leg, you think this is a disgrace. We <laughs> should do something about it, you know? <laughs> something, yeah. yeah. so that's what I thought. Well, you know, that's what we've got to do is talking about it because I know when I talked about it, I felt a lot better. Um, so yeah, that's I think it sort of went on from there, uh, and I had a, a my real best mate. This is another guy. He'd had a, a lot worse journey than me. He'd, but he'd battled through it on his own, Oof. and um, and I, we gradually talked more and more and more until we had this absolutely amazing relationship where we could talk about anything. There was just yeah. nothing off limits. Uh, no, it didn't matter how bad you felt. Uh, what you were going through or something like that, you can just say that to you, uh, to this other guy, and they're totally non-judgmental. And I knew how well, how good that made me feel. That I, I actually, any time of the day or night, I could ring this guy up and I could unload onto him, and he'd say, "Yeah, I'm how with Im- you, mate." How important was that for you? That you know, honestly, when I look back, if I didn't have that opportunity to have to to be able to have that person to talk to, I don't know where I'd be, because my wife. Uh, like she just didn't want to know about this depression. Like that didn't fit the image of uh, of the husband that she wanted. 
like this weak bugger that, you know, that had depression. That's that's not what she wanted. So to actually talk to him, like I, I couldn't talk to m- uh, my kids because I didn't want to unload all these sort of things onto them. Yeah, for sure. So there's actually, it was really limited, I was really limited in who I could talk to. And here was a guy that had been through just as much a journey, if not worse journey than me, that was really open and, and could uh, and gave me a lot of ideas on, on how I could handle things. Yeah. What do you think for people out there at the moment that are in similar communities uh, that are struggling with how to open up conversations with people what do you think what do you think people can do in those situations you know um, look I can understand how there are some people and I've tried this because we tried to get a group organised in our area where we could all come anyone with uh, depression could come and talk about their problems but a lot of people just couldn't talk about it uh, myself and my mate, we were really open about it. So everyone's a bit different and you've got to be a little yeah. bit careful. But it's really, really important. The worst case scenario is you don't talk. You don't talk to anyone, you don't find anyone and things will just get worse and worse and worse and you eventually get yourself into a corner that you can't mentally get out of. So you've got to find someone to talk to, even if you have to pay someone to, to talk to, like a psychologist or a, a mental health clinician or something like that. Because honestly, you don't have to so- necessarily solve anything, but being able to share that problem with someone halves the problem. It makes a huge difference as far as I'm concerned. So I, w- I would encourage people to don't be scared to, to talk to someone about it, especially if they know that they're going through a similar journey to you because you'll be surprised at how positive a reaction it is sometime. Yeah. Some person will open up to you and say, oh, yes, I know exactly <laughs> how you feel. And, uh, you know, and they're overjoyed that they've actually got someone that they can talk about it to. So I don't honestly think that it's something you should be scared of. And then the cloud lifts because Definitely. there's a, a, new, a new way of communicating with people. Definitely. And yep. relatability. Yep, and then instead of going through this journey on your own, you're going through through it with someone else. Mm. Uh, that there's lots of other people in my community that were going through exactly the same deal. Um, so yeah, it it didn't. I I th- I think my initial thing is I wanted to talk about it a lot more. Yeah, I, sure. I, I um, and and the question, the hard question was, how do we go about that, and how do we do that? You do that formally, informally, whatever. But to me, the important thing was to... Uh, I was very open about it, let people know, and I think that gave people a licence then to come and talk to me then because they knew, the, knew what I was going through. Yeah. Um, can we talk about how your kids have, have been through this journey with you and how they are now? Um, yeah, they've, they've seen me um, uh, at my worst when, when things were really dark, when my moods weren't good, um, you know... Uh, um, you know, we, uh, you know, a lot of the the, the, repress- the depression was because of this bad relationship, and so they they used to see the fights, and I I was battling away trying to keep the family together. That when uh, we de- eventually did split up, they said, "Oh no, that's the best thing for you, Dad. We could see, <laughs> we could see." Uh, uh, what you were going through and that sort of stuff. And How did the, that feel to you to have the kids? Well, it was a real weight off my shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, really it is. Uh, you know, I remember uh, one of my daughters said, oh, no, that's okay. All the, all the kids at school, like half of them, their parents are split up, so it's no big deal for them. And uh, so, yeah, that, that was a real... It, it was. It was a weight off my shoulders because I honestly felt a bit of guilt in the fact that I was letting them down, that we weren't able to stay together as a family. Yeah. And how are they today? They're really good. Yeah, I was wondering uh, what, uh, how it would affect their own relationships. And sure. Uh, yes. That uh, you thought there was going to be some sort of 
transition from how you were feeling in your mental state to them assimilating that or, or that take, exactly. them taking that on board. And, and perhaps a fear of being in the same relationship as their parents sure, had yeah. and that sort of stuff. But I, I think other than they're very, they're very careful... In the <laughs> in the relationship they have with people, which is probably a good thing. It's, not, it's never a uh, thing. <laughs> no, look, honestly, so far they've met some fantastic uh, people, and yeah. and, it, and it's worked really well. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad that there hasn't been a downside so far from that point of view. And are they living in a similar environment to where you're living now, or have they moved around? No, they've all moved away. So, uh, like, m- there was one uh, son who. He'd done three years of Bachelor of Ag Science and he was going to come back on the farm and, and take over the farm. Sure. But then after the divorce, I went from 5,000 acres down to 1,500 right, acres okay. with the debt. So it wasn't a viable farm that I could hand on to him. So he, he went away. He works for the Department of Agriculture over in Victoria now. Oh, amazing. And he's very happy doing what he's doing. So, yeah, uh, yeah so it's, it, it's worked out. And they've all, you know, everything from accountant to physiotherapist to radiographer to wow. mass phys ed teacher, they've all, I've, you know, you, I've managed to get them all through uni and they've all got their own lives that they're going through now and the, they've got their own paths and they all seem very happy. Amazing. Mm. It must make you very proud. I am very proud because they, they will never realise this, but when when I do have the inevitable suicidal thoughts and, you know, there would be dozens of them over the time and my my brain would automatically go to, no, I can't do that because of my kids. I love my kids too much to uh, to, to do that to them. So, and I be, because it, it happens so often that it would just happen automatically without me even thinking of it. You, you can't stave off uh, suicidal thoughts and, and think, oh, you know, I shouldn't be having them. No, it's a natural reaction and you, you've got a depressed brain and it's going to think of things like that. But the, the real problem is, well, how do you deal with those thoughts? And in my case, as soon as I had them, I think, no, I can't do that because it isn't it. And I didn't even have to think about it. It was just a total deflection and then helped me to move on. And I knew that tomorrow I'd be better. I imagine that it would be different for every person. For sure. Um, I always played a lot of sport and I really enjoyed the mental... Uh, like sometimes you can have someone beaten before they've even started because, <laughs> because of the mental war that you're that doing. <laughs> and, and, I, and I love that. I love all the psychology of that. And I honestly thought that I could beat my depression and, and, and my thoughts by myself because right. I thought I was mentally strong enough to do it. But you're actually against an opponent that's just as strong as you and it can outthink you. And it eventually gets you into the stage where you, you're backed into a corner and you just can't get out of it anymore. You can't do it by yourself. You need help. Well, you feel like that. You feel like that is sort of that side of you is one step ahead. Yeah. Yep. It's just as strong as me, and I couldn't beat it on my own. Um, so I, I think it's um, yeah, it's really important. Um, it, it amazes me that you can have these thoughts. And you think, well, that's not logical. Why would I think that? Uh, but that's the way your brain works. Yeah. It's actually working against you and and trying to uh, convince you of all this crap. Yeah. That's not true. Mm. But at the time it seems really true because it's in your head. Yeah. Now that the community is talking to each other a bit more and uh, how individually everyone's feeling, has things in the community improved for everyone living there and is there more resources coming in to help out? Um, look, people are definitely... Um, um, talking about it more and what uh, the most important thing for me there's less judgement they're not as wow. judgmental yep. about the whole thing and I, you, you, if you're in a small uh, rural community 
your image within that Im- that community is very important because you're surrounded. Like maybe in a city or something like that, you, most of the people you don't know, it's easy to hide it and that sort of stuff. But everyone knows you in a in a country community, so it's really it's really important uh, that this judgment side, uh, yeah, doesn't rear its ugly head. Um, I think that we've got definitely got better from that point of view. As far as support, it's very hard out in the country to get decent support. And then if you do finally get uh, someone, a psychologist or a, a mental health clinician or something like that, you just get to know them, you have a good rapport with them, and then they've moved on, moved somewhere else, and you've got to start all over again. So it, it can be very frustrating in the country from that, from that point of view. And I wish we were smarter whether it be um, have telehealth services, for example, where you can talk to a psychologist in a city on a television screen. Like I, I, I had a short burst of that on a trial program once, and that was brilliant. Yeah, you found that really good. Yeah, that was fantastic. I love that. We could you could soon uh, build a rapport with the psychologist that's on the screen there. And uh, yeah, each week we were dealing with things. You go, you drive into town. You're there for an hour and then you come away with a spring in your step. So it worked really well. Were you a little bit sceptical of, of using technology to help you get better? I, I think I'm pretty open to anything and, I, and <laughs> I'm not, and it doesn't work. If, you know, if, if it doesn't work, that's okay. We've given it a go. But it actually worked a lot better than what I thought it would. It was really good. But I know uh, they had this trial program at Oru with that and then, and then it ended for a while and they were going to try and make it into a proper program. And then I, I tried to uh, find uh, – they did – I know there was one guy that had really big tr- uh, troubles and he said, um, oh, yeah, I've been going to this telehealth service. And I thought, beauty, you know, I've been feeling a bit down. I might go to the doctor and see if I can get onto that. And I went and saw the doctor and he says, oh, no, you're not bad enough. I said, what do you mean I'm not bad enough? He said, oh, no, that's only for the really, the really bad people that they have that. But I, I think it's really important that if you recognise the feelings, which you do, you become – bit of an expert at it after a while and you recognise the feelings that you do at times when you do need a help uh, fairly early in the same before it gets too bad and yeah that that annoyed me that I wasn't bad enough. What do you reckon they can do better? Look just make it more freely available I don't know if it's a money uh, problem or whatever but uh, to me uh, that would be um, an economically viable way of treating people out in the country where you, you haven't got the travelling costs, where you have to see people yeah. face-to-face. This can, uh, uh, a psychiatrist could sit down in, in a city and, and see, whatever, 10, 10 patients a day, no worries, like, doesn't even have to move out of his seat. So to me, it, it's a, it would be a good way to go. Removing the obstacle of logistics. Exactly. And, and where people yeah. are. Yeah, and... and um, you know, you've, you've got uh, uh, in the outback and that sort of thing, you've got massive dif- differences. And if, and if it makes it too hard and someone's got to drive a few hours just to see someone for an hour, it's, it's not going to happen. You haven't got the drive to do that. Um, when you're in those... When, when you're in, in that situation, when, you, when your mind is not in a good spot, you really don't want to do anything. Yeah, you just want to curl up in a ball and, and, and just keep the world out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think we can we can still get better? And what do you think that we can do in, in terms of the conversation, how we communicate each other with each other on an individual level? What do you think we can still do better to do to to improve that? It's interesting when you when you make it public that you've had you've had a battle with depression, and, and people can handle it in different ways. Yep. Some people just don't know how to handle it, and they'll cross the other side of the street so they don't have to communicate with you. Yeah. Other people, you'll get an over the top. This is fantastic. Uh, 
sort of reaction where you know, <laughs> I, like, you know, I've been going through a similar stru- struggle and this is what I have and they're really pleased that they've got someone that they can talk to. Yeah. So it, I, I'm never judgmental about that. I don't criticise people who, who don't know how to handle it. But honestly, all you have to do is just be there for them. You don't even have to say anything. Uh, if, if When you're at your worst and you probably don't feel like talking much anyway, the fact that you've got this person with you that's willing to sit alongside you and share the, your feelings that you've got, that's one of the biggest things that you can do. And, right, and it's miles better than just being there on your own, just, yeah. just you know, tearing yourself apart inside. Here's yeah. this person here that's willing to be with me. What sort of advice would you give to people and and being available to open up that conversation? I know with us, it's just a matter of we'll just go to the other guy's place and have a coffee. Right. We have a coffee and a chat. And, uh, uh, yeah, that that's uh, it doesn't need to be anything other than that as far as reasons. Well, I'm coming over, I'm just coming over for a cup of coffee. Or he, my mate will quite often, if he's not uh, feeling too good, he'll just come around to my place and I've got, he's got his own... Um, container of biscuits of his favourite biscuits <laughs> so I'm all ready for him to go Yeah, uh, I've got the coffee there ready I've got his special cup and he knows it's there for him so you've created 24/7. that safe environment yes. for each other exactly and, that, yep. and that's been something that's been really important for you too going exactly. forward and your family Yeah, and, and look we do keep an eye on each other from afar so um, look, if I haven't seen him for a while or he hasn't seen me for a while we know what's going on there uh, we, we're holding up in a house, and uh, and so you what make you the effort to go and see each okay, other. Okay, yeah. Mm. Um, and and perhaps that's one advantage that country people have over city people is that, um, yeah. Look, I, I can understand that you might feel as though you're prying, but you're not prying. All you're doing is you're going around and having a chat and and a cup of coffee, which is what country people do all the time. Um, so yeah, I, sometimes we can. You know, if we think hard enough, we could think of a, a long list of excuses not to do something. That's pretty easy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's <laughs> it. And, and so maybe uh, just take a chance. What's the worst thing that can happen? He's not home. Uh, he doesn't want to talk to you. Uh, you know, that doesn't happen very often. So, yeah, really, when you look at it, there's not really many reasons not for not doing it. Yeah. And, and I think most times... Uh, you appreciate someone who cares enough about you that they want to come around and have a chat. Because when you're feeling really bad, you are the lowest form of life on earth. You know, you, you think no one would want to talk to me, and here's this person knocking on my door, want to come in for up. a chat. Yeah, yeah. yeah little things like that, unsaid things, can make a big difference. Yeah. And so, how are you today at the moment? Uh, look, I'm I'm really good, and I'm lucky I've got my friend. I'm lucky I've got my kids that are that are really good, and they know the the battles that I've been through and the, and that sort of stuff. I know that it's an ongoing battle sure. with the depression, yeah. and you and when I have my bad days, I say right, this is I know what I have to do here. Uh, just hold up for a while, just go easy on myself, be my own best friend instead of criticising myself. Be my own best friend, be a bit more lenient, and uh, and tomorrow will be a better day. Do you find your triggers change and you need to keep finding new ways to figure out what they are and, and then how to overcome those? I think I'd agree with that. It, it, whether it's uh, adding to the skill set that you've already got yep. or, or adapting to, to new problems, whatever. Uh, in the same way in sport, when you're out on the sporting arena, you're constantly trying to adapt and work out a way to win. This is a bit the same, the same sort of battle. That's Good the analogy. way I look at it. And, and uh, in some ways, if you're in a positive frame of mind, you think, right, this is a, this is a challenge. I'm going to make this. 
yeah. I got this. <laughs> exactly, that's it. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, and, and look, I have got fallback positions. If I feel, nah, look, I just can't handle this by myself, I know I can ring my mate up, any, uh, you know, and my family as well, yeah. uh, any time of the day or night, and uh, I'm not on my own. Because it's that feeling of loneliness, and I, I'm very conscious of this as a country person. Like, if I really, if I wanted to, I could spend uh, every day of every week home and not see one person. I could be left on my own if I wanted to. And that's dangerous, I reckon. Uh, you really need to have, like, sometimes the thought of, you know, going into town, you think, oh, God, I'm going to meet all these people. And You're I don't really, see such don't and really, such in the street. Yeah, and it's just, nah, stuff it. I just want to stay home. But, it, it, yeah, you, you, it's not right, you know. So I think that, um, and I know of a few uh, sole operator farmers that it can actually get themselves into a bad spot when you're left, left to your own thoughts. Can we talk about the motivation and things that do you think from your experience experiences that people can do to better motivate themselves to actually get off the couch and and get in there and, and, and do this? Thing. Well, th- these, are, these are some things that I would do, is I remember, oh, well, the last time I went into the town, it was actually wasn't that bad when I got in there. So you've got that, <laughs> you've got that memory of that. Another thing that I'll do is make a, make a solid appointment so to go right. and see someone. So I can't let that person down by not turning up. So you're forcing yourself you're forcing to forcing myself to do it, yeah. And that's, exactly. been, that's been quite good for you. And that's where sport's been good for me over the years because, oh, you know, you'd, I don't really want to go. But then when <laughs> I get there, within five minutes, I'm loving it because I'm... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, it's a bit like mental tricks. You're doing mental tricks on yourself. You're trying to fool this, this other voice that's in your head, uh, like out-trick them and, and uh, do the things that you need to be doing. And you feel like the sport is something for me, listening to you, that's come up quite a lot. And how, how important then, obviously, has sport been for you? Fantastic, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I don't drink, so I don't go to pubs. So the only way I get to meet people, well, listen, uh, you know, uh, contact with new people is, is through sport. And it's, and it's a fantastic medium. In fact, toward my latter years, I think the, the social side of it was more important than the actual uh, social side of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, than the actual, sorry, not the, the social part was more important than the actual the competitive. competitive part yeah. of it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a matter of uh, getting into patterns, uh, getting other people to give them the opportunity because people don't want to pry sometimes, but if you give them the opportunity to help, 90% of the time they'll So a little bit, little bit of persistence. Is there anything you want to say to people out there that they can, that you want to pass on right now? Uh, I can only, I suppose the only thing I'm an expert on is my own situation. But I know that from the time I grew up from an early age, I had this plan of what I wanted to do, uh, of handing the farm on to the fourth generation uh, in a better condition than what I'd received it um, and all those sort of things. But in the end, that didn't work out for me. In fact, every I actually uh, lost more money in my lifetime than what I'd actually earned. Everything went to someone else who didn't like me very much. And, and so there's that feeling of uselessness and the fact that I'd, I feel as though, even though I was really uh, optimistic and, and, uh, and uh, yeah, wanted to achieve so much uh, at the start of my life, I'd actually, here I was at 60, and I'd lost more than I'd actually earned in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Every, everything I wanted has been, been gone. And it's really hard. 
it gets back to that, that feeling of hopelessness, how bad a feeling that is. And you feel as though... And we, but when I've talked to other people, they've been in a similar situation when you're so optimistic at the start of your life and then at the end of it you think, wow, you know, I didn't... I thought I was going to do all this stuff, but I never really did it. Um, it's easy to get yourself into that state, but honestly, you're not, you're not on your own. And the way I look at it now, all right, I've lost everything that I've ever worked for um, and that sort of stuff. But I've got, what, two years, 20 years, who knows, left of my life. Here's an opportunity now to, to do something positive with the rest of my life. In my case, right, let's, I've, all I've ever done is farming because uh, I wanted to set things up. That hasn't worked out so well for me, but now if I lease my farm out, for example, I can go uh, and go travelling, something I've never had the opportunity to do before. So let's, let's turn it into a positive and, uh, and go from there. So, uh, yeah, it's all about these mental tricks and, and, uh, and turning the, the negative into a positive. And for some people it might be very hard, but it is possible. And that's for you, it sounds like, what people can take away is try something and if it doesn't work, just yeah. keep trying new things and keep trying new things until you find something that grabs on for you and then use that. I imagine that the story would be different uh, for, for every person, but it's a matter of finding what works for you. Yeah. And what helps you is being able to have that communication yeah. with either a friend who's in a similar experience or a psychologist or, um, or whatever. Uh, the uh, you know we uh, we can soon eke our life away and and say oh I'm not enjoying this but there are other possibilities out there really. How much do you think having a drive for different experiences has shaped you as a person in a positive way? Honestly, look, when I was really depressed, I didn't have any positive experience. There was no hope. It was just black. Um, I think that I've had to work at it and with the benefit of my friends and that sort of stuff, that my natural, positive, uh, optimistic soul has, has come to the fore again and then I've been able to be, build on that and get to the stage that I'm at now. And it's not to say that I, I still won't have bad days, but I know what to do now yep. when I have yeah. those bad days. And I think um, it's a bit like um, you know when you're playing tennis and you're trying really hard and you're hitting them up halfway up the back netting and they go, what the hell? You know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Like, that makes you so frustrated. But then when you find out that, oh, actually my grip's not quite right and I'm not moving my body right and that sort of thing, oh, yeah, well, it's actually nice and knowing that you've got solutions even when things mm. are going bad. And that's what it's like being like with me with depression is I've got solutions. I've got tools in my kit bag now that I can go to when I really need to. And a team as well behind you. Yeah. yeah. And you might feel really bad on these days with a, yep, I've been, I've been through this before but I know what I'm going to do. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for me personally, and I'm sure there's people out there that have enjoyed listening to this, but it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Kim, you're a, a testament to adversity and, uh, and a wonderful human being and uh, someone to look up to. And it's been a, a pleasure for me just to meet you and just hear your story. I just think there's a lot of people out there that are going through similar experiences or have gone through similar experiences that I think can draw from this and draw from your energy and draw from your positive outlook. And, and uh, all I can say to you is just please keep doing what you're doing. You're, you're spreading a, a wonderful message and you're changing people's lives. No, well, thank you for the opportunity. And I, I, the only reason I'm doing it is because it would make me feel good if I, if, it, if I was able to help someone with my story. So uh, hopefully that's the case. I'm sure it is.
Well, thank you so much for coming on. No worries.